morning. I have a bad habit of not testing my mic before we get up here. Um, these mics are a little awkward. I feel like one part Garth Brooks, one part Shania Twain. Uh, contrary to popular opinion, I believe uh, that the two of them killed country music. Uh, it has absolutely nothing to do with what we're talking about today. Let me read something to you to start us off today, but before we do so, let me just say um, thanks for being here. Um, we're excited about you being here. If you have called the Grove your home for a long time now, we expect you to be here, but if uh, you're new and you're kicking the tires, we just want to say um, we hope that you find this place to be a safe place, a place of belonging, a place where you can encounter uh, true community true communion uh, with uh, not only God, but with one another. And so uh, we're happy that you're here. I'm happy that you're here. And uh, I want to begin by asking you to put your imagination caps on. If you need to close your eyes, you can do so. Uh, This can be distracting, I know. Um, (laughs) My wife's not here to say amen, I was hoping. Uh, But anyway, thank you. This is uh, called The Voice from the Mop Bucket. It's by one Max Licato. The hallway is silent except for the wheels of the mop bucket and the shuffle of an old man's feet. Both sound tired. Both know these floors. How many nights has Hank cleaned them? Always careful to get in the corners. Always careful to set up his yellow caution sign warning of wet floors. Always Chuckling as he does, be careful everyone he laughs to himself, knowing no one is near, not at 3 a.m. Hank's health isn't what it used to be. Gout keeps him awake. Arthritis makes him limp. His glasses are so thick, his eyeballs look twice her size. Shoulders stoop. But he does his work. Sloppy, uh, slopping soapy water on linoleum. Scrubbing the heel marks left by the well-heeled loggers. He'll be finished an hour before quitting time. Always finishes early. Has for 20 years now. When finished, he'll put away his bucket and take a seat outside the office of the senior partner and wait. Never leaves early. Could. But doesn't. He broke the rules once. Never again. Sometimes if the door is open, he'll enter the office. Not for long, just to look. The suite is larger than his apartment. He'll run his fingers over the desk. He'll stroke the soft leather couch. He'll stand at the window and watch the gray sky turn gold. And he'll remember. He once had such an office. Back when Hank was Henry. Back when the custodian was an executive. Long ago. Before the night shift. Before the mop bucket. Before the maintenance uniform. Before the scandal. Hank doesn't think about it much now. No reason to. Got in trouble, got fired, got out. That's it. Not many people know about it better that way. No need to tell them. It's his secret. Hank's story, by the way, is true. A name's changed in a detail or two. He's given a different job and he's put in a different century. But the story is factual. You've heard it. You'll know it 
when I give you his real name, you'll remember. But more than a true story, it's a common story. It's a story of derailed dreams. It's a story of high hopes colliding with harsh realities. This happens to all dreamers. And since all have dreamed, it happens to us all. In Hank's case, it was a mistake he could never forget, a grave mistake. Hank killed someone. He came upon a thug beating an innocent man, and Hank lost control. He killed the mugger, word got out, and Hank got out. Hank would rather hide than go to jail, so he ran. The executive became a fugitive. True story, common story. Most stories aren't as extreme as Hank's. Few spend their lives running from the law. Many, however, live with regrets. I could have gone to college on a golf scholarship, a fellow told me, just like last week on the fourth tee box. Had an offer right out of school, but I joined a rock and roll band. Ended up never going. Now I'm stuck fixing garage doors. Now I'm stuck. Now I'm stuck. The epitaph of a dream derailed. Pick up a high school yearbook and read what I want to do sentences under each picture. You'll get the dizzy, breathing, the thin air of mountaintop visions. I want to go to Ivy League school. I want to write books and live in Switzerland. I want to be a physician in a third world country. I want to teach inner city kids. Yet, take that yearbook to a 20th year reunion and read the next chapter. Some dreams have come true, but many haven't. Not that all should, mind you. I hope that little guy who dreamed of being a sumo wrestler, came to his senses. I hope he didn't lose his passion in the process. Changing in directions in life is not tragic, but losing passion in life is. Something happens to us along the way. Convictions to change the world downgrade to commitments to pay the bills. Rather than make a difference, we make a salary. Rather than look forward, we look back. And rather than looking outward, we look inward. And all too often, we don't like what we see. Hank didn't. Hank saw a man who'd settled for the mediocre, trained in the finest institutions of the world, yet working the night shift in a minimum wage job so he wouldn't be seen in the day. But all of that changed when he heard the voice from the mop bucket. Did I mention that this story is true? At first, he thought the voice was a joke. Some of the fellows on the third floor playing these kinds of tricks that they do. Henry. Henry, the voice called. Hank turned. No one called him Henry anymore. Henry. Henry. He turned toward the pail. It was glowing. Bright red. Hot red. He could feel the heat ten feet away. He stepped closer and looked in. The water wasn't boiling. This is strange, Hank mumbled to himself as he took another step to get a closer look. But the voice stopped him. Don't come any closer. Take off your shoes. You are on holy tile. Suddenly, Hank knew who was speaking. God? I'm not making this up. I know you think I am. It sounds crazy, almost irreverent. God speaking from a hot mop bucket to a janitor named Hank. Would it be believable 
if I said God was speaking from a burning bush to a shepherd named Moses? Maybe that one's easier to handle because you've heard it before. But just because it's Moses in a bush rather than Hank in a bucket, it's no less spectacular. Sure shocked the sandals off of Moses. We wonder what amazed the old fellow more. That God spoke in a bush or that God spoke it all. Hey God, we are so thankful for your presence in us and amongst us. We love to dream until we look back and we see that those dreams have been derailed. A dream deferred, a dream derailed can feel as poison to us. God, I pray that this morning your spirit, your breath would fan the embers of those dreams that once burned so brightly. Not only for our individual selves or for our families. But God, I pray that this community would catch fire. I pray that you would speak to us in such a way that we would be impassioned, emboldened, and captured by your love to dream the dream that you have for us to change this world. Teach us both to not be like Moses and to be like Moses. May we be your hands and feet to this world. And as my nephew says, this little, tiny, sweet, little, tiny, tiny, small mountain town. Amen. His name is Charlie, and that's what he actually says about Bryson all the time. He lives in Orlando, the world of Walt Disney. But he loves our train. So this story, again, is an odd story, and it is also a common story. And today we're continuing our series, uh, our walk through the Bible, with uh, Brian McLaren's book, uh, We Make the Road by Walking. And uh, this week's chapter is entitled Freedom. It features the story of Moses and the idea of liberation. Moses, that individual who looms over the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Jewish Bible, the Old Testament as we Christians call it. Moses who functioned as prophet and as priest and as king. Moses who ascended the hill, who went to the mountain, who spoke God to God as face to face, who had the stone tablets and came down. Moses who went through And rescued his people from Egypt. Moses, whom Jesus would become a second type. But before we get into Moses, and in particular, both his divine encounter with God face to face with the burning bush that was referenced in this story with Hank. And before we talk about how he wrestled with the dream that God had for him, and before we discuss what that means, a little context. You see, slavery was a sad and common reality of the ancient world. There were four ways that you could end up in slavery. One was after a great misfortune, a famine or a flood. 
when someone was in danger of homelessness or starvation, they would actually sell themselves into slavery so as to be provided for and cared for. The second way was when a uh, nation would go out and wage war against another nation and conquer that nation. They would kill, um, but they wouldn't kill all necessarily, and they would take individuals from that defeated nation as spoils of war, using them as slaves. A third way was if you were a refugee or if you were a vulnerable minority in a civilization or in a culture, it was often that you would become a slave. And then fourth, babies that were born into slavery were destined to become slaves. And as we are looking at the story of Moses and this idea of freedom, we see that this is what had happened to the descendants between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus in the Bible. As Genesis ends, Joseph had welcomed his brothers into Egypt as refugees to escape a famine in their land. And finding refuge solved the famine problem, but refugee and minority status made them vulnerable to enslavement. McLaren describes it as Exodus begins, the Hebrews, as Abraham's descendants, were called having been enslaved, and they had grown so much in their numbers that the Egyptian had begun to fear that they might rebel. And so the Egyptian ruler at that time, a story most of us know, the Pharaoh, calls for a gradual genocide by decreeing that all the male babies born to the Israelite slaves will be thrown into the Nile River to drown. See, this strategy was that after a few generations, Hebrew women... Uh, would either be barren or vulnerable to sexual enslavement. And after one generation, no more pure Hebrews would be born. And thus, the Hebrew people would be assimilated fully into the larger civilization and culture uh, of the Egyptians. See, often in the Bible, when there is a big problem, we see that God prepares a person or a people to act as God's partners or agents in solving it. In other words, the way God gets involved is by challenging us to get involved in the story that we find ourselves in. And as we just mentioned, in this case, what happens is with the backdrop of the Egyptians taking and doing this damage to the Israelite people, Moses is born. And Moses is born and Moses' mom is crafty or led by God or both. And so she decides, I'm going to throw him into the river as is decreed. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to find out where Pharaoh's daughter is bathing in the Nile. And I'm going to put him in this little ark, this little thing built of reeds and send him down the river so that she finds him. And that's what happens. She finds him. She adopts him. Not only that, but. Moses' older sister had journeyed, had been instructed, go and when he finds, come to her and say, hey, I know someone who will, um, who will serve as a, as a wet nurse. And so not only was Moses adopted into the nobility of the Egyptian royalty, but he was also entrusted to his very own mother to be his caretaker. And so Moses grows up with this interesting dichotomy of worlds. He is in one way 
a true Egyptian citizen. Not only a true Egyptian citizen, but favored. And in the other way, being nursed, being led, being raised by a mother who's singing him the lullabies of how the Israelites will one day escape their captivity. And so fast forward until Moses is a young man and he comes upon a scene where an Egyptian is beating an Israelite slave. What does he do? He ends up in that moment, killing the Egyptian and hiding him. Now, just an aside in this moment is that it's not only important to understand that God births in us or implants in us the seed of God's dream for us. Not only is it important and necessary for us to recognize that, but we also must know when and where and how for that dream to take reality. So many times in the scriptures we see that someone has God's dream in them. But decides not to wait on God's providence or on God's direction or on God's way. And tries to realize the dream in their own reality with their own power, with their own cunning, with their own strength. And it backfires on them time and time again. Think Abraham and Hagar. And Ishmael, think of all the times that we get ahead of the promise that God has for us by taking it into our own power instead of relying on God's. So this is what happens to Moses. Moses comes upon the scene of two Israelites quarreling and he wants to intervene. And they're like, whoa, dude, we know what you've done. So he realizes at that moment that his sin, his murder, his anger has been found out. And now he's no longer both. He's neither. He's going to be rejected by the Egyptians whom he's just killed one. And he's rejected by the Israelites because he's responded in the manner in which he has. And so what does he do? He flees. And this story is pretty cool. He flees up and he finds... uh, some people bothering some ladies and he takes care of them, runs them off this time, not killing them and gets adopted into a family of sorts and spends the next several years as a, as a shepherd in the wilderness. And that's the story. Like Hank, he's been a refugee. He's been a fugitive. He's hiding. And life has become muted Do you ever feel like the colors have kind of just gone out? Do you remember when you were a teen? I work with teens and they're crazy. It's not their fault. When When you're a teen, your brain's not even fully set until you're 25 years old. I mean, the jello's still shaking, right? That's why God has given us to them to serve as uh, surrogates, uh, prefrontal cortexes, which help uh, regulate decision making and processing and risk taking and those kind of things. But do you remember the fervency? Do you remember when the earth stopped revolving on its axis and everything felt like it was just going to fall off? 
because of that zit. Do you remember when that cute girl or that good-looking guy grinned at you in the hallway at your locker and you felt like Red Bull had given you wings? Sometimes I feel like my life is like uh, faded hydrangeas. Is that how you say that word? You don't know what I'm talking about. Plant. Remember how bright they are? In Florida, everything just kind of stays in bloom. But it's like all the vibrancy just kind of sucks out because there's no seasons. And sometimes I feel like that. I wonder if you have on the dream that God's given you. The truth is, I said this a couple of weeks ago, God has a dream for you and for each of us to change this world. And maybe this world isn't North America. Maybe this world isn't the state of North Carolina. Maybe this world is my relationship with my, my family, my work, my classmates, my church. But God's called us to be difference maker and dreamers. And so Moses is prepared. And Moses could have just kept kicking the mop bucket down the road, tending the sheep. But one day, something catches his attention. And it's a bush that's burning but is not consumed. And in that bush, God speaks to Moses and says to him, The dream isn't over. I'm ready to breathe life into it again. So imagine that scene. Moses is out tending sheep. One day something strange catches his attention. A bush on fire. It's not burning up. When Moses comes closer to check it out, he hears a voice calling his name. It's God. And God is telling him to go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh about his exploitation of the Israelites and lead them on a long road of freedom. Moses feels he's already failed at helping the Israelites, so it takes some persuasion for him to agree to accept this mission. I love this idea that God shows up to Moses in this miraculous way and says, I need you to go do this. I need you to go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, right? And Moses, instead of Immediately saying, gosh, yeah, beats his chest. King Kong ain't got nothing on me. Instead, Moses, confronted with his dream, begins to cop out. Now, there's a Old Testament theologian and scholar named Victor... um, P. Hamilton that I always kind of go to when I'm trying to look at the first five books of the Bible. And he has this interesting take on Moses that when this dialogue with Moses and God happens in the burning bush, he's basically saying that Moses is reacting not in a rational way, but Moses is instead acting in a visceral manner. The progression of the dialogue is more visceral than Rational. It is happily for Moses that a long-suffering God with whom he is conversant. God counters Moses' excuses at each point. And Hamilton says that there are five 
eyes that Moses responds with. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh? You see, the first response when faced with our dream is often this idea of inadequacy. We belittle ourselves and we say, I can't do what you're calling me to do. See, the common denominator in Moses' various responses in this text, in that in all of them, he is thinking of his resources and not God's resources. The whole point of the deal when God gets involved and calls us to change the situation is that we can't do it. When God calls you to a dream, it's going to be beyond your natural abilities because God wants to get involved and show you that this isn't on you, it's on us. God says to Moses' first excuse, I will be with you. That is to say, for Moses, that the ultimate question is not, Who am I? But whose am I? God's called you to a dream larger than yourself because it's not about you. It's about you and God. It's about that vibrancy, that power, that empowerment that God wants to use. After that, Moses responds with, If I come to the people of Israel and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? This is in chapter 3, verse 13. You see, Moses anticipates that a a boundary, that a blockade to him doing what God has called him to do and realizing his dream is this idea of ignorance. Not only is he inadequate, but it's ignorance. What is the name? What shall I say to them? You see, Moses is anticipating that he will be unable to answer a question that he will be asked in a satisfactory manner. The thrust of Moses' concern here, Hamilton says, is, is that the name of God has faded from the memory of the Hebrews, having been so ensconced, so captivated for so long in Egypt. That's what he says, but really at the root of this, what he's truly saying is, this is going to be a litmus test. They're going to ask me to identify the name of the God that sent me as a litmus test to validate my ministry among them. And here is where God reveals God's own personal name, Yahweh. Translate a lot of ways, and we could spend a year talking about this. But it's, I am that I am. I, I will be who I will be. And the point is, is that in this ignorance, in this idea of I don't know who's sending me, God is willing to take a chance and put his mark. God is willing to put her mark, her name her reputation, his reputation on the line. God 
is basically saying you can't have a meaningful relationship and realize a dream unless you have a personal relationship with the individual that both births that dream and will empower the fulfillment of that dream. Some of us, our dreams are deferred. They've been derailed because we haven't pressed in to know personally enough who this God is. We have dreams because that's who we are. That's what we do. We're made in the image of God, a God who dreams. But we've lost contact with the person who birthed that dream in us, who wants to empower that dream. And as a result, it's faded because that intimacy is no longer there. See, it's not just a matter of whose you are, but how close to God you are. Inadequacy is not a response that we can give. Ignorance is not a response that will carry water. Neither is this idea of incredibility. In chapter 4, verse 1, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my words, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. You see, still haunted by the personal rejection, Moses suggests that his credibility will be attacked by his own people. The people of God are more of a thorn in the flesh than the enemies of God. And in this point in time, Moses is granted three signs as empirical evidence of his divine calling. A rod is changed into a snake, then back into a rod. A healthy hand becomes leprous and then healthy again. A cup full of water from the Nile poured on the ground becomes blood. You can read all about these in chapter 4. The first two for Moses at least would cause no little anxiety. God must shake Moses out of his selfish rationalizings. Moses must learn that It is God who is calling him to do absurdly difficult things. The enemy of the great is the good. It has been said. The enemy of you realizing God's dream for your life and for your family and for your community and for this world. Is just enough of a relationship with God. Just enough of checking the boxes of a religion that makes you feel comfortable. I used to tell my students at the university, I'm afraid that you guys are going to become so familiar with all of these things around here. These teachers, this, this information, these worship services, all these opportunities to serve. That you're not going to be tested. It's going to be easy to just go along with the flow. A few weeks ago, I talked about what it meant to, to, to uh, question God, to wrestle with God, and to even kill your God. And behind all of that was this idea that God needs to test you and try you in safe places so that when it becomes unsafe, you have been uh, hardened, you have been steeled, you have been trained. Uh, so that when those moments come, you can respond in the manner that you want. My, my question for us today as we're talking about dreams is, is this idea of 
Are you now being shaken? Has there been anything in your life, in your faith, that you can recognize in the last six months, the last year, the last three years, or ten years, where you felt like, I can't do that? God's calling me to do something that's going to take more than what I can just do. It's more than write a check. It's more than my 10%. It's more than just coming to Sunday mornings. It's more. Is there anything that your faith is doing to cause you to move out of your comfortable uh, stance in life? Because if it's not, if you're not in little ways being challenged by God and proving to yourself and gaining the ability to, to risk and to succeed then how in heck are you going to be able to do the big things God asks you to do? If your faith is incredibly safe, then maybe your God is too small. Maybe you have uh, domesticated the line of Judah in your life. So not only do the excuses, you know, of inadequacy and ignorance and incredibility um, not going to pass with God here, but Moses has two more. The first is uh, in verse 10, Oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, but I'm slow of speech and tongue. That's inarticulateness. We don't know if Moses actually had a stutter or some kind of speech uh, abnormality, but something's going on here. And then he follows that up with, oh, my Lord, send, I pray, some other person. And this is insubordination. I don't want to do it. Send somebody else. And so Moses' attempt to avoid his duty reaches its climax in these two objections. Send some other person. God reluctantly cooperates with Moses' request, suggesting the appointment of Aaron as Moses' surrogate. Aaron's credentials, Moses' brother, he can speak well. That's about it. How well? At least well enough to solicit support and funds for the apostate act of building the golden calf later. And it's here, satisfied that God is on his side, Moses begins his journey. So here's two more excuses. This idea of inarticulateness. You're not strong enough. We've already covered that. Okay, good. That means God can get some glory. The, the last thing there is... Is this idea of, uh, I, I, I don't want to do this alone or insubordination. Here's the thing. God almost never will call you to something that you yourself only have to do in a vacuum. God calls us. It's a team. We're a community. If you're called to do something, my job as a pastor is not to tell you what to do or to tell you how you have to do it. But my job is to, to help you hear what the Spirit's saying and help you catch your stride with the spirit to be who you're supposed to be. My, my whole job here is, 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 and, and, and Jess and Jody's is, is not to teach you or tell you what to do, but it's, it's to challenge you, to equip you, to teach you how to be who you are. Because when we're all us, I mean, the kids are learning about this in Upstreet right now. They're all talking about Mr. Potato Head. And and Paul's talk about how the body of Christ is composed of different parts. You got elbows and heads and sweaty armpits and all those pieces. And here's the deal. We need sweaty armpits. We need ways to get the toxins out of our community. We need elbows. We need tongues. We need heads. We need all these things. And our job is for all of us to figure out how we fit in this symbiotic relationship. 
so that we can be the true body of Christ and representative of God's hands and feet and elbows here in Swain County. So Moses does it. Moses goes and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. All this miraculous stuff happens. All this goes on. And you would think, that's it. Happy story. We're good. But we see that the Israelites over and over and over and over again want to exchange the freedom that they have found in God's dream for the comfort, the security of the slavery that they knew. Again, God is calling you. God is calling me. God is calling us to realize a dream. And let me tell you what God's favorite dream is. I think I can say that. I can say that with confidence because it's what Jeff talked about last week. It's what's found in the Old Testament. It's what's found in the New Testament over and over and over again is that God is on the side, not of the oppressors, but of the slaves. Of those who are captive, of those who are marginalized, of those who are the vulnerable and the least amongst them. You see, it was into this world, with this context, with this background and history of coming from a people who were over and over and over again in captivity and slavery that Jesus was born. And when Jesus came on the scene, there were basically two motifs. Of how to be like God. And one of them was purity. Man, this is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but mostly the Pharisees and the scribes, they seized on. We're going to be holy, holy, holy. We're going to hit all of our customs, all of our ritual laws. We're going to do all this because if we do all of this, then Messiah is going to come back and save us. He's going to overthrow Rome. Another way to say that would be Whitey's going to get his. And that was what was the motif, the popular idea at that point and at that time. But Jesus comes on the scene and he brings back the motif, not of purity that separates us from one another, but the idea of compassion. In fact, in Luke, in the Sermon on the Plain, Luke says that Jesus says, be compassionate or be wombishness as your father, your daddy is wombishness. Now, that's a funny statement right there. But the truth of the matter is, is the prophets always said to the religious, you got it wrong. I don't need more sacrifices. I don't need to hear the more bleeding of sheep. I don't need more blood. What I need is justice. I need righteousness to sweep like a flood on the streets. I need the brokenhearted. I need that triumvirate of the widow and the orphan and the strangers or refugees among you. I need you to be the people who brings them freedom from their captivity. Jesus says, I'm preaching this word so that the blind can see, that the lame can walk and jump, and that the captives will be released. That's who Jesus was for. That is God's dream realized in the very person of God's son. And that is who we are to emulate and mimic. If we're 
going to be about God's dream, then it's not about rivalry. It's about reconciliation. It's about that we're to be on the side of the oppressed. I'll put it this way. If you want Jesus to be at the center of your life, then you have to live on the margins. Because that's where Jesus is. So the band's going to come up now. And they're going to play us a song. And we're going to move into a time of communion. And let's just say that here at the Grove, this table is open because we are God's beloved. When we sit, or when we stand, or when we take of this, and just very practically the way this is going to work is, I'm going to pray a blessing over it, you're going to come up, you'll take, you can either entinct or dip your uh, cracker, or wafer, or piece of pita, or gluten-free, or whatever it is, into the cup. Please don't leave it in the cup. We don't want Jesus' body just hanging out, Right? Take it and eat, or you can you 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 can take it back to your seat and do those kind of pieces, but with the cup and, and with the piece, and you're going to do it on your own. But this is what I want to say to you, Jesus. Every year of his life, celebrated something called the Passover meal. In fact, it's what he did the day, uh, the night before. Uh, uh, the night taken into captivity and before the crucifixion, he's with the disciples. And this was done into remembrance. This was done as a way of saying we were once in captivity, but we serve a God who is on our side and who has released us from that captivity. And it was an act of solidarity. And Jesus not only does that, once a year, but Jesus encourages his followers to do this on a more regular basis. And as Christians, that's what we do when we take this cup. And when we do this, we're saying to ourselves and to one another in a very strong manner that we are about a people of spiritual resistance. His name is Robin Meyer, and he wrote this book, but he says there's three things for us to get into freedom. As the people of God. The first is that there has to be a resistance to ego. It's not just about me. We have to understand that this faith is a faith that is communal and travels. And it's not about me feeling good. It's not about me doing this. God is not just a cosmic vending machine or a uh, heavenly Santa Claus who wants to make me feel all nice and good inside. But God is challenging me to live a dream of meaning and purpose. And so the first thing, when we take this, we're resisting our ego and we're saying, this isn't just me, this is about us. This isn't just about the people in this room. This is about all who have followed Christ previously and in the future. When you take this cup, there is no time. There is no space. In a very true sense, in this, you're taking this cup with the ancestors, your great-grandparents who might have been Christians before you, and your great-grandchildren who will be Christians after you. This is what we do when we take this cup. We resist the ego. The second thing is, is we resist orthodoxy. Jesus was never about religion. Jesus was about a relationship with God. And so we have to move into points that we do this. This is not a, we get into heaven a free card because we took a cup and we took away for it. No, this is a celebrating the fact that 
God is alive with us here and now. And that there is a beautiful mystery that sweeps us up into the body of Christ. That is beyond any just cognitive or rational declaration that God is real. And instead, we are grafted into a very true vine of presence with the divine in the here and the now. And then thirdly, it's not just resistance to ego or orthodoxy, but it's a resistance to empire. Braden kind of mentioned it earlier. We live in a very radical political climate. Let me tell you something. If you follow the risen Savior, if you call yourself a Christian, a little Christ, then before you were a Republican, a Democrat, a Libertarian, or whatever it wants to be, you are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And instead of being red and blue, we need to be purple. We need to figure out how to be our own thing. We need to be a faithful presence in the here and the now. And so proclaim that we are ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, which takes the poor and the marginalized and upsets it all and says, God is on the side of the afflicted and the poor. And as a result, we are going to be one in body and spirit and purpose. And that is to accentuate and to realize the actual presence of God in the here and the now. So when we take this cup, I want you to think about that. How can I resist my ego? It's not about me. How can I resist not just orthodoxy and religion and checking the mark, but how can I encounter the divine and the true risen Jesus in a way that will set my heart on fire and recover the dream that God has breathed into my life? And then thirdly, we resist empire because ours is not the way of this world. Ours is the way of a slain lamb who conquers through the word of testimony. So, Lord, I ask right now that you bless us in this time. Thank you for your stories. Thank you how they embolden and enliven our consciousness, how they set our heart aflame. Thanks you for those people in this room, myself included, who want to resist just kicking the mail pop down the, the linoleum floor a little more. We want to have this understanding and breathe into us of what it is to be your people on fire, Lord. Teach us what it is and help us to say as we take this cup, as we take this bread, that we resist ego, we resist orthodoxy, we resist empire so that we can be true to you. We love you and we thank you. Stand to your feet, let's sing this song. And when you feel so led, then avail yourself of the table. Church, understand this. God has a dream for you. If it's not been fully realized, it's not too late. Understand this. We're all broken. We're all jacked up. There's not anything in us enough to do what God has called us to do. And the glory of that all is God's with us in our weakness. It's through our brokenness that we understand that God's love is more than enough. Take time today this week to dream take time to sit down with a pad and a pencil to sit out in the yard in this beautiful weather to get a cup of coffee to look into the eyes of your loved one that sweet thing that you call your spouse or your girlfriend hug your kids whatever you need to do but let the dreams start to reawaken in your life And share them with each other so that we can fan the flame and encourage one another to be who God has called us to be. Listen, called by God's name, realized in the person of Jesus, we can resist ego. We can resist orthodoxy. 
we can resist empire and in doing so be a faithful presence to this place and change it. We can and we will be God's hands and feet and smiles and encouraging words and hugs to this city, this community, this world. God, help us to make it so. In the sweet, strong, powerful name of the Son of God, the risen Christ himself, Jesus of Nazareth, we say, heck yeah. All right. See y'all.